episode 23 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hi, Aviation Nation. My name is Daniel Baker. I'm the founder and CEO of FlightAware. I've been flying for more than 15 years and running FlightAware for more than 10. And so I've really had uh, more than a decade of being able to do what I love, which is both fly planes and uh, work with technology around airplanes. What is going on, Aviation Nation? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast, episode number 23, featuring the FlightAware CEO, Daniel Baker. I'm so excited to talk with Daniel today and just tell his story. Some of the things in this episode that we talk about are how crazy it is to think that there used to be a time where we didn't track our flights, what it was like learning to fly in a class Charlie airport, what frustrated him most in his training, why he loved instrument flying, how shiny jet syndrome is a real thing, and no matter how safe of a pilot you are, there will always be a time you have to deal with some kind of failure and how important it is to be prepared for any in every situation. I'm excited to announce my Patreon giveaway. I'm going to be giving away a four flight subscription, a FlightAware Enterprise Weather subscription, and also some FlightAware swag. I am so excited for this. I'm so excited to give this away to my Patreon subscribers. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, head to patreon.com slash pilot the pilot to enter. All you have to do is give $1 a month and you are entered. You get as many entries as you give monthly. So if you give $1 a month, you get one entry. If you give $5 a month, you get five entries and so on. I hope to do more of these giveaways in the future. Guys, if you enjoyed the episode, I want you to go ahead and leave us a review at iTunes. Comment on our post. You can DM us at Instagram, at PilotThePilot. We love all the comments that we get. We use that feedback to help create this amazing product and create this podcast and make the best podcast that we can possibly make. And without further ado, here's Daniel Baker. Hey, Daniel, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. No problem. I'm really excited to, to tell your story, to talk about how you got into aviation, to how you created an awesome app that pretty much everyone I know uses, whether they're in <laughs> aviation or they're, they're just tracking to see if their loved one's going to get to Thanksgiving on time. But uh, it's just, I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. And it's it's really funny that you mentioned the the broad scope of use of FlightAware because I'll be honest, I, I didn't see that coming. A lot of people... Uh, will credit me with, you know, having this brilliant foresight of this thing that would impact so many people. But really, uh, I did it because I wanted to be able to track flights. That's awesome. Yeah. And like you said, you had no idea that it was going to be a grandma tracking to see if their grandson was going to get on on time. So it's really cool just to see how how you had an original idea and how it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, it was uh, it was really because I was flying around Texas in a Cessna 172 and um, flying a lot between Austin and Houston. i originally from Houston and flew to see family here. And it was frustrating to me that I would take off uh, behind, for example, Southwest Airlines, and we'd use the same runways and the same routes and land at, at Hobby Airport. And I wasn't able to track my flight. You know, my family wasn't able to track my flight. They didn't know if I had left yet, if I was going to be on time. And so it was a really a, a, it's frustrating because you realize this data was clearly out there. It was from the FAA, but it wasn't available to general aviation. And so I thought, this, this would be a, a fun little project to work on. Yeah, for sure. And <laughs> I'm glad you did it because I know my company uses it all the time. I know I use it all the time. I just like to look and see what my track actually looked like. And I like to see, I'm, I fly uh, FAA 135 single pilot IFR. So some of the stuff I fly through is some pretty crazy thunderstorms and pretty crazy weather. And then I like to go back to flight aware and see what I actually flew through. Sometimes I don't like what I see. And sometimes it's like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting because when I when I started it, I really the target was, and I explained this to the FAA at the time, was just the low end of general aviation, right? Which is like the owner operators, the um, you know Part ninety one guys. Because I was naively under the impression that when you got into one thirty five and one twenty one and stuff like that, um, all these companies had perfect solutions and tons of technology, you know, because people just expect that the industry is very efficient right. and, and modern. <laughs> And um, it wasn't long after the website was launched that charter companies were calling and flight departments and, and FBOs. Um, and, and, you know, it's been a really long time, right? FlightAware started in uh, 2005. And this is before the iPhone. This is before most people had any sort of Internet or email connectivity on their phones. Um, this is before, at least in the U.S., people were really doing any kind of text mes- messaging. And so the ability to uh, to do this on your computer and get some sort of text message from FlightAware was really, really revolutionary. Um, and and you, know, you mentioned looking at a past flight, and I remember that was actually an innovation that FlightAware had, which is that most flight tracking systems could only show the last two or three positions for the current flight. Yeah. This is in 2005. And so when we launched in 2006 with the, the ability to click on a previous flight and see a previous flight's track, that was mind-blowing to people because – um, you know, a lot of the flight tracking systems had been designed in the in the 90s when storage was just a lot more expensive. You know, they were building this on uh, maybe a two gigabyte hard drive and we were building with 80 gigabyte hard drives. So we had, you know, 40 <laughs> times the capacity. Um, um, and we keep saying to ourselves, you know, we're eventually going to um, have every position uh, so well documented and, and, and recorded that we're not going to need to expand our infrastructure. But then the coverage just keeps getting better and better and airplanes are emitting more more positions. You know, at the yeah. time, we were doing getting one or two radar positions a minute from, um, from the FAA. And now, for example, if you've got ADSB from our multiple receivers, we might be getting 20 positions a second for your, for your flight. And we're trying to, you know, make all those available and, and historically and in replay. And, um, so the game keeps changing, which is good. It's, it's state of the art. One thing I thought was really funny is you talked about how they were using two gigabytes of data and you're using what 20 and now like you're probably using terabytes of 20 terabytes of data and <laughs> unbelievably oh, amount. It's, it's absolutely incredible. You know, when we uh, when we started on it, we just used a server that I had for, for personal personal use and just for, for goofing off and um, ran it on there and then bought one server and then bought two. And um, now it's the numbers are in the hundreds. You know, we've got multiple data centers and uh, I don't even know how many many terabytes of storage we have. But That's awesome. um, to give you a sense of it being a hobby, uh, originally the thinking was let's give this away for free. It's just for fun. And, you know, we still give it away for free. But we thought, well, we're going to have hosting fees and bandwidth and, um, and other costs. So let's put up, and at the time, it was Google Ads. And if we can make a couple hundred bucks a month in revenue, uh, then we can pay all of the fees and then we can have flight tracking for free. Um, and it's, you know, sort of funny to think about you know, we, we we sort of thought, well, a few hundred dollars a month is probably the most we could ever we could ever <laughs> generate. And now we have you know ten thousand customers and um, eighty employees in multiple countries. That's and, awesome. And, and now more than ever, I recognize that we're really just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can do with this technology. So it's exciting to not be saying, well, we built this thing in two thousand five, and now we're just running it. You know, yeah. we're we're looking to what we're going to be releasing in a month, in a quarter, in a year. And there's more good ideas than people to do them. That's for sure. That's awesome. And I like how you said that, like you started in 2005 and ever since then you've continued to innovate, you've continued to work toward and always, you never really, you always want to continue to see where flight can get because I mean, 
we're in a day or in a we're in an age now where you created the software, someone else can create the exact same software. So you have to continually improving your product and improving what you have and giving the customers a reason to keep coming back. And I know that's got to be tough with how like 2000, like we said, it's 2017 and anyone can create this kind of product. So you got to really have that customer base to continue to dominate it like you guys have. Yeah. And so it's a combination of, you know, we have enough customers that we can afford a lot of people to work on it. So we've got, you know, about 40, 45 software developers working on it around, uh, you know, every day. So, um, uh, you know, in a given week, we'll do uh, over 200 man days of work, basically a year of, hum- of human work every single week. Um, but we're passionate about it, too. You know, it's not yeah. we're not the kind of business where, you know, a customer provides us this 10 page specification and we bid on it and then we go work on it. It's more like we, we look at how people are using it. We look at problems that people are having uh, and, and you know, we we love working on the technology. It's really cool to be able to have a such a large impact on the industry. So um, there's a lot of passion for aviation here. There's a lot of pilots here, and um, you know, I'm not going to say that every every day and every hour is uh, 100% fun because there's a lot of hard work, right. and uh, you end up working on some stuff you didn't really want to, and uh, things get complicated too because we're supporting very some pretty large enterprises, whether it be um, uh, Fortune 500 flight departments or huge uh, airlines or huge service providers that are partners of ours, whether it be companies like CETA and IBM that pr- provide a lot of infrastructure for airlines. And so, you know, we have to treat it with, a, provide a high level of reliability and provide the ability for people to upgrade from one platform to the next over years. And so we're supporting legacy platforms and all sorts of stuff. So, you end up having to do a lot of uh, a lot of stuff you didn't anticipate um, as a result of the success, but it's a good problem to have. Definitely, and it's definitely a good problem to have, like you said. And before we dive too deep into FlightAware, I kind of want to get to know why you got into aviation. What was the why? Like, what started your love for aviation? So I've always loved flying. You know, as a kid. Uh, you know, going to see family and, and flying on the airlines and just uh, that the entire experience. And, and I still do. And I, what I think interests me a lot is just the the sophistication, the complexity of of all the moving pieces, both literally and figuratively of whether it be an airline or aviation. I mean, the f- flying, flying and, and everything that goes into the decision making and uh, the amount of ground support and the uh, the, the training and, you know, how airport operations work and air traffic control works and this this symphony of stuff that's happening has always been very, very interesting to me. Um, and so I enjoyed watching that as as a passenger and, and really wanted to learn more about it. And so um, about 15 years ago, I started flight training. I was living in, in Austin and uh, was flying in a 172 and you know, really enjoyed that as well. Um, but it wasn't until, and that was more just a fun thing. I didn't have any professional ambitions. It was just fun flying around. I flew friends around. But it wasn't until I started my instrument training that it really clicked for me. Um, the uh, you know all of the behind the scenes stuff that's happened at air traffic control, and you know you really get uh, to take a peek at how the uh, the whole airspace comes together. Um, but you also start to see some of the inefficiencies and uh, and some of the issues. But it became clear that there was an opportunity to work on it. Yeah. Uh, and that was really what, you know, as I said, originally caused me to start to work on FlightAware. That's awesome. Yeah, I love how you said, like, you were talking about how you, when you first realized that you had a love for aviation was when you could see how many things are happening behind the scenes. And I can understand where you said when you did your private and then between your instrument, 
during your instrument training, you could kind of see how everything worked out because you have to talk to ATC, right? Like you have yeah. to figure out how to get into this airport. You have to fly this approach or you have to hold here so this plane can do this. And you have to kind of, like you were listening to plan ahead on the radios, you can kind of plan ahead by being like, all right, they just gave that American Airlines this approach. I'm probably going to do that approach. So it's really cool how instrument flying works and how you can kind of feel yourself moving throughout the traffic and you can kind of understand what's going on. Yeah, and it even fits into the larger picture of the life cycle of a flight. And, and it's inter- I'm still intrigued by this, you know, and how flight planning works for an airline. You start to look at the crew positioning. And if you think about the, you know, these long haul flights, you know, the crews being positioned and, 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 you know, essentially meeting the airplane some, somewhere down the road and uh, everything just kind of comes together perfectly where people just show up and fuels on ported and cargo is loaded right. and, you know, passengers arrive that have connected from everywhere. And just in the span of, you know, 90 minutes, this entire thing just comes together and an airplane or blast off and fly to the other side of the world. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, really impressive. Uh, and one thing that's cool is that there's not a ton of technology startups in aviation. If you think about, if you said, you know, who are the big technology players in aviation, you would probably think largely about, um, avionics companies and, uh, airframe manufacturers. You'd be saying names like Honeywell and Rockwell and right. Boeing and Airbus. Um, and, but if, but if I said, well, who are the big technology companies in, you know, mobile phones or in social media, there's a million, right? You right. can name that are all young. And so it's really cool being uh, a, a, a young modern technology company in aviation that's in the non-certified space. Cause there's, there's several avionics manufacturers that are um, in the certified space. And uh, it's just a much tougher road than being in the non-certified space where we're developing at the speed of a Facebook or something, or but um, able to impact an industry that historically moves pretty slowly, right? Because right. the stuff is so, um, you know, r- there's so much rigor and, and regimen around uh, designing technology that go- that's really part of an instrument flight, for example, or part of an engine, but not for you know, the technology that we're providing. So it's sort of the best of both worlds in my, pers- you know, if you ask me. Definitely. No, I agree. And I, yeah, aviation, everything happens slowly in aviation. Thank goodness for the iPad. Cause I feel like if the iPad never came out, we'd still be doing so many stuff with paper charts. And I just feel like we never would have gotten out of the stone ages in aviation. It's incredible to think about, you know, when I, when I learned to fly, it was with round dials, right? It was a non-glass cockpit. Um, it did have a GPS, but it was, it was a very modern plane, but it was in the non-moving map, which was sort of the standard at the time. And it was, and it was paper charts. And so, um, I, you know, over time, I've added more and more things to say, this is what I would not fly without, right? And right. now it's, it includes an iPad, it includes ADSB into the iPad, you know, Stratus, and um, you start to think back at what we what I sort of jokingly refer to as the very innocent times, you know, right. before you had all that. Um, and it's, and it's amazing. It's had a huge impact on safety. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's a, tr- a terrific thing. Uh, that I think other people have reached that same conclusion that a lot of these things are must-haves and they're not super expensive, right? How expensive was it to add a, G- a, a GPS to an airplane versus how expensive is it to add an iPad with four flight to your right. airplane? It's, the cost is just crazy, the difference between it. Because like you said, I mean, the GPS is what, like $10,000, maybe more, depending on what you get. And if you yeah, go to all, yeah. G1000, you don't even know. <laughs> you don't even want to know the kind of prizes you're going to be paid for that. So, yeah, what an ADS-B can do with a flight with an iPad, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's it's sort of funny. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you think there's these uh, endorsements that you get, right, if you want to fly, fly 
you know, tricycle gear or if you want to fly high performance and whatnot. And I think that there's going to be a a point where you're going to need an endorsement if you want to fly steam gauges, right? Right. Because a lot of people are coming up only on G1000 or, uh, or, or similar or better. And, you know, to put that person in a, in a, you know, a a 1970s 172 or something would be (laughs) a a totally different world. So I look out. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Fortunately, you know, I'll get grandfathered in, but there, there's a lot of folks that, but you know, they probably, those folks probably don't want to fly in that airplane anyway. So it's right. fine. That's very true. And it's funny you say that because I'm on the other end of that. I've actually never flown more than a, a six pack. I've never flown a G1000. Is that right? Yeah. My, the smartest technology I've had on an airplane is a 430 and a 530. So I okay. have yet to get there, but I'm flying really good. Like I'm flying PC12s. I'm just flying the older ones that have the older equipment. Uh-huh. And some people that are just getting in it, into aviation might be like, well, how does a plane fly without a G1000? It's like it flies perfectly well. Thank you very much. And, and so, what, so what do you have in addition? You have some sort of FMS and stuff, right? We don't have an FMS. We just have oh, uh, wow. we just have Garmin. So we just do, we enter our flight plan. We go direct, enter, enter, and we fly the flight plans through that. And I mean, we have a multifunction display, but that's just kind yeah. of for traffic and that's kind of for terrain and stuff like that because we have radar on board. And XM weather as well. But yeah, we mainly oh, sure. rely just on our 430 and 530. And then we have a an electronic heading indicator and electronic attitude indicator. So, And you fly two pilot? We fly, most of the time we fly single pilot. But we okay. have a SIC program. So we'll be training SICs every once in a while. So every once in a while on a, on a longer trip, like down to Mexico from New York, I'll have a, someone with me so I can fly longer. And so do you have ADSB out? Uh, right now we do not, no. Right now we're just rocking the, the old, we're straight up old school, man. Well, you know, the reason I ask, of course, is the is the flight or interest in that, because if you've got ADSB out, you mentioned flying into Mexico. Um, we have tons of ground stations in uh, in Mexico and throughout throughout Latin America. And we'd actually be able to provide end to end flight tracking if you know if and when you get ADSB out. Although, actually, for uh, Pilatus, you probably have a mode S transponder because you're in the flight levels. Right. Uh, yeah. So. So we could multilaterate, you know, we can triangulate your position. Oh, cool. um, I don't know if you've, if you've seen that happen, but if, if three or more of our ADSB ground stations can see a non ADSB target that has mode S, then we'll triangulate it. It's sort of like a poor man's secondary radar. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Always looking out for everyone. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as, as the ADSB adoption gets better, the, the flight tracking and flight over is going to get enormously better. Um, position goes from 2000 feet to, you know, a few meters. The update rate will eventually be once a second for everybody. Uh, we did a partnership with Arion, so we're getting space-based ADSB globally. That's uh, awesome. So it's it's just it continues to uh, to, to innovate, and uh, and we continue to see what we can do with that data. So it's really exciting. Yeah, soon you'll be able to track Richard Branson's flights into space, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not far from that. We've definitely we definitely have people talking about that, and yeah. there's been actually some talk about um, satellites emitting ADSB and being able to pick up the position of satellites and, and their trajectories. So um, I think that's the next frontier. You know, people ask a lot of times about what else we can track. You know, do you, you know customers will say, well, can you track ships and trains? And I say I think we've solved one percent of the problems that, for flight tracking, and so I'm not really looking to expand <laughs> the scope, but right. you know. Stuff flying into space, I think, would be within the scope of what would be interesting. And, That's really cool. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, SpaceX is launching these satellites uh, for Iridium and Arion that are providing space-based ADSB to us. It'd be really cool if we could track those, uh, tr- track the actual satellite launches with the ADSB receivers in space. So, uh, it's not out of the question. That's really cool. Yeah, it's crazy just where technology can go and where it can take us. So, I look forward to see what you guys can do with that. Yeah, likewise, it's keeping yeah. us. 
You're keeping us pretty busy. Heck, I can only imagine. Well, let's go kind of back to your training. Where did you train in Austin? I've flown out of uh, New Braunfels and Martin, uh, San Marcos a lot. Did you train out of those airports or where did you train out of? Yeah, so you're you're hitting on some of some of my old stomping grounds. So um, it's a school that still exists. It's called Austin Academy of Aviation. Okay, and um, it's uh, largely 172s, and it was at Austin Bergstrom Airport, uh, nice. so the main, the main airport in Austin. And this is before they had uh, what's now Austin Executive. Yeah, that's and, a nice airport too. Yeah, it it really is. And so we would take off from Austin and then do uh, all the training in San Marcos. And so it was okay. sort of the best of both worlds insofar as you know, you're departing a classy airport, you know, between at the time Continental and Southwest, but then you're getting some freedom and flexibility to do pattern pattern work down down south in in San Marcos. But I actually did my private pilot check ride at New Braunfels. Okay. Which is sort of the craziest thing to think about. I even thought this at the time, that basically you get an endorsement for a cross country to New Braunfels as a student pilot. Yeah. You fly down there by yourself. <laughs> Theoretically you could fail your check ride and then fly back in the national airspace <laughs> system to a class C airport. But fortunately, I um, I passed the check ride, that's so I funny. didn't have to exercise that authority any further. You know, I've um, never so, actually thought about that. That's a good point. It's like you could technically fail your check ride where they don't think you are you are able to fly a plane by right. yourself and then fly right. back home. <laughs> right. You're like, all right, well, yeah. off I go. Yeah. Um, but you know, at that point, it would be probably some you know relatively minor uh, infraction, or at least I would I would hope so. But right. but no, it went uh, it went very well. And uh, we had my instructor had taken me down to New Braunfels before, and so we kind of practiced it because uh, just making sure I was I was familiar. But uh, I definitely arrived you know very early, and uh, you know you I kind of wondered at the time if the examiner was there watching my my landing, and you know of course he <laughs> wasn't. It wouldn't have cared probably. Yeah, no. but, uh, you know you're. You're definitely on edge. I didn't sl- probably sleep a lot the uh, night before. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I was the same exact way. What was it like being a, a new student pilot training out of a class Charlie? Because I know student pilots are terrified, and even some private fi- private pilots are terrified to talk on the radios. And you're just thrown into a major airport that has, like you said, Continental, it has United, it has American, it has British Airways. Like yeah. everyone goes there. What was that like? It was. Um... It was a great experience. I found it very, very intimidating at first, but um, fortunately, the operations are pretty simple for what, what we were doing. They've got two parallel runways. Um, the GA guys are all on one of them. You tend to get the same intersection departure. Um, and so w- once you kind of figured out the pattern, that you're always going to get the same instruction. They're very consistent. It wasn't like flying into a uh, one of these big GA airports where um, there's a lot of different ways they're going to have you approach the runway. And there's a lot of different types of airplanes at different speeds. I mean, it was mostly jets and then me, right? right? And so... It was pretty consistent, and I was definitely, and I definitely believed in the kind of fake it till you make it philosophy, which is, <laughs> you know, sound like you know what you're doing, and uh, you know, it'll it'll work out fine. So, yeah. but, but I mean, the good news is it 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 left me with a lot of confidence, and I mean, when I was, you know, I got my my private pilot's license, and then probably. Within a few weeks, I had flown into, you know, Houston Hobby, which is a big airport, uh, flew into LAX, uh, DFW, and you just, you completely lose any concern for, uh, for, for, for the, the big airports. And so that was a huge benefit. I mean, th- there's one big downside, I would say, of, of training an airport like that. And this is a little bit of a frustration during my training was, you read everywhere that you're going to get your, your certificate in 40 hours, which I think right. probably isn't true for most people, yeah. but it's definitely not the case if you need to fly, you know, 40 miles to begin every trip, you know, <laughs> begin every, every train. Yeah. Like. And so, um, you know, cause you take off from Austin, then you fly south to San Marcos and then you begin your, your lesson. And also your, um, 
you know, the Hobbs is running while you're on the ground in a rental airplane. So mm-hmm. I was probably north of 80 hours by the time uh, I actually took my my private check ride. And so, uh, you know, I think that if you go to any flight school's website, it's kind of what I would consider the big lie, right? They, how much does it cost, right? And they always show you the least expensive airplane yeah. and assume that like at 39.5 hours, you're going to be going up with your CFI to make sure you're good for your check ride. And I, you know, I don't think that's doing anyone any favors. I think both in flight training and in business and in life, the number one thing you need to do with other people is set their expectations accurately. And so I think that was a that's just a disservice for for all students is to uh, is that it, hey it's going to take twice as long it's going to cost twice as much um, and I think that's that's the reality that that should be set. Oh, I completely agree, and I love how you brought that up because there are some flight schools that will be like, oh, you can do all your training in this champ, and then you'll be fine. It'll be like fifteen grand for everything. It's like no, that's not true. And of all the people that I've talked to, I think one person so far has taken their check ride within probably about 40 to 42 hours. I know the national average is closer to 70, maybe 80 hours. So you're actually more right on track with the national average, but I think it does. The flight schools are doing a disservice by kind of marketing the fact that you can do this in 40 hours and this is how cheap it is in 40 hours. It's like, well, no, why don't you give me the price that it's going to be the national average? And then I know exactly what I'm getting myself into because that will give them a more understanding of what flight school to choose and what flight school is really going to be the cheapest. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And the other thing about the private is it's such a broad range of skills that you need to have, right? You need to have um, the flight planning, you need to have, uh, you know, aeronautical decision making, and you need to have stick and rudder, and you need to have navigation. I mean, it's it's, a, it's very different. And I think people excel at some things and not at others. Um, versus, you know, if you look at something like um, the instrument, which I actually really, really enjoyed and probably why I'm, I'm doing FlightAware now. And um, that's a, a much more narrow set of skills, right? There's, um, it's largely around understanding how approach plates work and the airspace system and then being able to, um, you know, the kind of the stick and rudder element of, of doing the scan and all that. But it's right. not nearly as broad. And so I think that, um, you know, you could go up with the CFI and they can gauge what you're probably gauge what you're good at. And in that case, for example, I did my instrument check ride with 40.0 hours of instrument time. But what I did there was kind of weird. Um, You know, I've always been working uh, as I've been flying. And so I would go up in the evenings. This was in the wintertime. I did my instrument training. So all of, almost all of my instrument training is actual at night. Oh, that's awesome. And and so (laughs) you, you get pretty proficient pretty quickly if you're flying actual approaches in IMC at night um, so it wasn't foggles or, or any of that. I mean, it was the real deal. And so we would, um, jump around Houston and go from, I was living in Houston, my demand training and go from like Sugarland to hobby to Galveston. We went to IAH and back and you, you know, you do that if, a bunch of times and you're proficient pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, it's a much more stressful uh, endeavor as well. And, oh yeah. Uh, I, I at one point lost my instrument currency and had to go do an IPC and I thought I would just breeze through it because I had done very well at the training, but I hadn't flown instrument in probably a year and showing up after work at 8 PM after I've been working since 7 AM and thinking, you know, without eating dinner that you're just going to show up and, you know, nail an IPC was, right. uh, <laughs> shall we say a little optimistic. So <laughs> it's all, but it goes to show how important proficiency is, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're sure. doing the real thing in real IMC, every, every single night you can knock it out in no time. But the second that you step away from it, 
um, you know, your skills step away too. Oh, definitely. I've noticed I've even taken one. We have uh, we work 10 days on five days off and when I have my five yeah. days off. Even when I come back, I'm a little bit rusty because I'm kind of out of the game. My proficiency, I haven't been working on it because I'm not flying. And it's just it, kind of think of it as a landing. Like if you haven't flown in a year, you're not going to want to be like, you're not going to trust yourself landing a plane because it's a skill that you need to continually work on what, how you, how you reach that skill and how good you are at that, right? So why would you think that you could go fly IFR and shoot an approach down to minimums? You know, it's like it's the same skill that you're yep. working on and every single day getting better at. And if you take time off, you're not going to be able to do that as well as you were before because you got to practice at it and get better. It's like a craft almost. Absolutely. And what's funny is, you know, if I don't fly, we'll get rusty on uh, just like, you know, where the hand hands move and, you know, how, how the checklists go and just like just to actually flying the airplane. I, I because of my job, it's funny that I will stay pretty current mentally in how routings work and DPs and stars and, you know, getting shortcuts and all of that. Because day in and day out, we're talking about it, we're thinking about it. And so my brain is up to speed on the IFR stuff. But, you know, the actual flying the airplane or whatever is, you know, you got to be in the airplane right? to, yeah. to really get that experience. For sure. Yeah. It's uh, taking time off and not being in the airplane can definitely cause some issues once you finally get back in the airplane because your mind can tell your body what to do, but then you might have a slight delay and your hand's like wait what am i doing and then that is right. enough to kind of get yourself in some trouble right there that's right yeah absolutely yeah so what other ratings do you have do you have your private and your instrument do you have anything else so i have uh commercial uh multi and uh and single and an instrument oh cool what was your favorite training to do what you mentioned before you really liked ifr would you say that was your overall favorite absolutely i, I mean sort of my one of the very first things we were talking about which is why i you know, fell in love with aviation, just the, the complexity and the sophistication of it. Um, and I, I still feel that way about how amazing the technology is that allows us to fly an instrument approach and being able to just nail that with precision and understand, you know, why you're getting vectored some way and joining the approach and then popping out at minimums. It's just, it blows my mind. I think it's so cool. So that, that was definitely, uh, definitely my favorite. Um, I would say that, um, you know, commercial is, is kind of a strange, is kind of a strange one. Um, I think, you know, the FAA needs to have something in there to differentiate private and commercial, but it's a bunch of random things, um, that, that they're, they're, they're training you on, you know, and it's questionable to me, you know, who it applies to, but they're also trying to do flight training and testing for a wide array of pilots. They don't know if you want to go fly, you know, right seat and, um, in a jet, or if you're going to go do sightseeing, or if you're going right. to be, um, you know, skywriting, I mean, who knows? And so it's just is really, it's a smorgasbord of PTS activities that, um, that they have you do. And, um, you know, that wasn't quite as interesting to me. Yeah. Um, you know, the multi-engine stuff was, um, was pretty cool. I found that a little more technically interesting and it's always cool flying around with, you know, one engine shut down. So that was a kick, <laughs> but that was a you know relatively short program compared yeah. to any other ratings. Definitely. No, flying the multi-engine plane was awesome because like it's your first time in a multi-engine plane. You feel like your career is starting. If you want to be yep. a professional pilot, you can see yourself getting in a bigger yep. and better and faster airplanes. And when you fly a 172 for 300 hours you kind of have shiny jet syndrome almost and it's it's hard not to or multi-engine yep. plane syndrome whatever you want to call it no absolutely yeah it's it's the real deal like i wanted to you know use the uh, asymmetrical thrust to do turns just because i could you yeah, know right and, uh, but i mean it's a lot of levers it's kind of crazy uh to think about you know and 
to what we were talking about earlier, just the slow evolution of technology. I mean, it's non-FADEC, right? I mean, it's somewhat equivalent to the leaf blower I have uh, in terms, <laughs> you know, in terms of, uh, you know, choke and, you know, prime priming it with yeah. fuel and all the different, uh, the different settings. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable the, what people are having to train in. And it's kind of funny too, because, um, you know, what, what percentage of folks are getting their multi in a twin piston, right? It's probably north of 90%. Right. But what percentage of those folks will ever fly a twin piston again? It's probably less than 10%, right? That's very true. Yeah. That's a, that's actually a very good point. I think I was one of the rare cases in that because I flew aerial survey and they had okay. 310 Senecas and aero commanders, but okay. you, like you fight to get multi-time. That's why I know previously when the airlines could kind of hire whoever they wanted, they wanted to have people that had a ton of multi-time because it was really hard for people to get. So it, they knew that it would kind of separate people and they could choose who they wanted. But now that they that uh, the pilot shortage is here and that they need pilots, they've lowered those standards. So I know the regionals were higher with as little as 50 hours multi-time, which is just crazy to me. But like you're they're going from flying a Cessna 172 and then going to sit right seat in a in a jet flying people around with only 50 hours, which is just crazy. But it's tricky, you know, because, um, for example, you're flying the Pilatus, yeah. and so you're not getting any multi-time, but obviously I have tons of experience, you know, real world. And, um, you know, it's sort of funny. I was reading an internet forum the other day. This kind of reminds me of if someone was um, – I think they had a uh, a Baron, right? So, a, you know, very nice twin piston, and, mm-hmm. and they were they were toying with uh, buying some, I think, a, a light jet or, or very light jet. And they were frustrated that the insurance company really emphasized – the amount of jet time that they had and their point was which is partially valid right they're saying wait a minute jets are easier to fly right because a lot of it's fadec and it's just move the power you know move the power level lever and i think that what the insurance companies are more are not really super concerned with the actual operation of the turbine engine they're far more concerned with just all of the implication the real world implications of flight levels and power management and the weather situations that you're going to face and fuel management and flight planning. And so they pick these arbitrary metrics because how <laughs> yeah. else are you going to evaluate somebody? Right. But I get the frustration uh, that, that someone has because it is true. And I, and I remember thinking that at the time, which is uh, when I was um, first flying um, in, in and out of Houston a lot, hobby has a pretty complicated uh, runway configuration uh, in Houston. And I remember uh, taxiing around at night, and this is pre-iPad, and um, thinking about, hey, I'm a single guy uh, alone in this cockpit with, you know, just look at this chart, and I've got my little flashlight, <laughs> and you have these airliners who are two pilots, they're probably 30 feet higher than me. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and just the, the, the vantage point that, that they have and, and, and all that, it's, it's not necessarily, I'm sure certainly they were more skilled than me as well, but it's actually easier, right? When you're higher, you have multiple people, you have a lot more sophisticated avionics. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that in the, you know, the arguably more complicated planes is in fact easier. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it does get a little bit easier. It makes it a little bit easier on the management of a pilot because there's less things that they might have to do. But I know that airline pilots definitely have some, a lot of systems that they got to memorize and the, the planes are more complex and that's where the high amount of time in that plane would help. But I understand, yep. like you said, I understand where that guy's coming from. He's like, I have like 5,000 hours flying an airplane. Like I'm qualified <laughs> to fly. Let me get this. You know, it's like if I take, if I pass my check ride and if I get my certification, like why does it matter? You know? Yep. So yeah, I, I can definitely see why he would be like that. But at the same time, I can understand the, 
Because, I mean, whenever something bad happens, the first thing they say is how much time do they have? You know, it's like what, how tr- how well trained was the pilots? And if they say, oh, well, they only had five hours in that airplane, they're like, oh, well, why did the insurance ever let them fly that plane? So I understand why they would do that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's a, it's sort of a uh, misleading that people think they're going to get into a, a, a VLJ, you know, do their private and then buy a Honda jet or, you know, buy a, a, a Cirrus jet or, uh, you know, something like that. That would be that. awesome, but it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, it's, a, it's a very complicated thing and the FAA has to try and uh, manage it with just arbitrary metrics, sort of the standardized testing that doesn't mm-hmm. apply to everyone. And then the insurance companies are, are doing the same. Um, and yeah, you know, by and large it works. Right. You know, that's very true for, for the mass amount of people it works relatively well. And that, I mean, that's fine. I'm not buying a plane right now, so it doesn't bother me too much, but <laughs> maybe in a couple of years, if pilot to pilot does well, you never know. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like a lot of things in life, you know, yeah. it doesn't really bother you until it does, you know, yep, it's sort of exactly. like a joke that, um, you know, a lot of people complain about Uber surge pricing and I feel like it's, Hey, it's supply and demand. It makes a lot of sense. I'm a proponent of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of eye roll when people complain about it, but then if I need to go to the airport and it's surging, I'm totally mad. You know, yeah. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm <laughs> so playing six times the normal price. What the heck? <laughs> right, exactly. It's just like, I, I, I love it in principle. Just yeah. not when it applies. To me. I know. Right. Yeah. Please don't do that to me, but anyone else is fine. <laughs> right. But that's just supply and demand for them. Yeah, for sure. That's funny. No, it's funny you bring that up because it's definitely true. Um, going back to kind of what was like some of your flying in general, what what are some of your favorite flights you ever had? Did you have any like scary experiences? Have you had any, I don't know, say engine failures or any maintenance issues or was your training relatively easy or do you have any fun stories from that that you want to share? So um, just thinking thinking along the the, the lines of uh, all, all the flights that I've had, I certainly remember after probably 20 or 30 hours, whatever it was, of, of flight training at Austin and San Marcos, getting, you know, enjoying the actual flying aspects of it, like flying an airplane, but not necessarily enjoying any of the scenery or thinking it was cool in that regard. Because if you take off from Austin Bergstrom and go south to San Marcos, it's nothing, right? It's just right. grass. And uh, we did a cross country and we decided rather than fueling up at Austin, which is pretty expensive um, uh, and, and still is, in fact, um, we would stop at an airport called Lakeway. Uh, no, I'm sorry, at, at Lago Vista Airport near near Lake Travis. And so we took off and for the first time went sort of north and west. And so we flew over downtown Austin, then flew over the lake and then flew into an airport that had terrain all around it. And that is a moment I'll never forget. I mean, it was the first time we were, first of all, going somewhere new. There was, I mean, it was just, it was water, it was terrain, it was a city. Um, And and I still to this day enjoy small airports that are tucked in someplace. I mean, obviously, um, there's nothing wrong with a 10,000-foot runway and, you know, no terrain around it, but it just (laughs) demonstrates the capability of of an airplane. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, so I enjoyed that. I uh, used to uh, do some work in Southern California, and I would rent airplanes uh, from um, Justice Aviation at Santa Monica Airport. And um, so basically, I'd work and then go in, in the evenings, uh, rent a plane from Joe Justice and go fly. Oh, nice. And that probably was some of the most beautiful flying that I would do. We'd hop around uh, Southern California where they have a million airports and a million airports with restaurants. And, you know, flying, uh, for example, from L.A. up to Santa Barbara um, with Catalina Island off to your left, um, you know, you could look down and see the beach. You look right. You see all this terrain. There's water that I mean, that was just 
unbelievable. Um, and, and I had a similar flight. I was uh, working in, in Portugal and uh, rented a plane with a pilot because it was a Portuguese registered uh, airplane. It was a uh, Rams 172, which is the uh, oh, nice. French company that makes of their version of the 172, which yeah. I think has a bigger engine, but otherwise is pretty much the same. And we flew around southern Portugal, including the most, um, I think, the most southwestern point in uh, uh, in continental Europe, and just goofed around there for a while. And just the the stunning scenery at you know fifteen hundred or two thousand feet um, is is super memorable for sure. Definitely, yeah. That's one of the things I love about my job right now is I'm one. Of, I mean, it's it's one of the bad things and one of the good things is I have no idea where I'm going. So I have a 45 minute call out and I have to get to the airport and take off within 45 minutes being called out. And sometimes that's me going to Mexico. That's me going to Canada. That's me going to Colorado. And I live in Northeast Ohio. So you got to like in 45 minutes, you got to get to the airport, take off and also pack for the necessary climate that you're going to be in. So it can be all over the place, but it's really, it's fun going to Mexico. Like you said, the runways are long, but they can be challenging. They don't have as much radar. They usually just use DME approaches, which is you never do in the States anymore. So going down there and shooting a DME approach can be interesting sometimes because you're like, I haven't done that in a year. How do I do this? So that's (laughs) always fun. But we go to Saltillo, we go down to Mexico City and all those places. And Mexico is a beautiful country. I I didn't know this until I started flying, just the mountains that they have. And I've seen some of the coolest sunsets, sunrises, craziest thunderstorms. So it is a really cool country to fly in. But it's kind of like you said, when you're doing your training, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. You're flying to the same practice area. You're flying to... You're doing the same maneuvers. Everything's the same. And sometimes it's good to step back from doing that and actually going to enjoy flying. Just go, if you're a private pilot, just go rent the plane, take up a friend, take up your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Go fly around. Go see what it's like. Go enjoy your craft and your industry that you're in and go to a different airport you've never been to. Go outside your comfort zone and have some fun. No, absolutely. I agree with that. And, and it's just, it's an amazing experience because you, you really never know what it, what's, what the weather's going to be like. And, um, uh, the, the picture of the world, um, from above the clouds, in the clouds, below the clouds, you know, popping out and there's terrain, you know, uh, uh adjacent you on an approach or something. Yep. Um, it's, I really love what a lot of people are doing on YouTube with GoPros and, and all that. And, I, and it's some captures some beautiful stuff. But to see it firsthand is uh, a, a truly incredible experience. It's hard to capture any other way. It is. It's very true. And I was lucky enough to fly out of North Carolina. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, the, North Carolina is everything you could ever want in flying. There's mountains to the west. There's a coast to the east. There's big yep. cities. There's everything. So all my... I've, do cross countries to Asheville or do cross countries out to Wilmington. And it's just like, you get to see everything. And that's one of the reasons why I think I love flying so much is because I kept it interesting. I kept seeing different landscapes and that's kind of what aviation is all about is you get to connect to different places that you've never been before. And like you said, in 90 minutes, a a triple seven can go from landing from London to flying you to Japan. It's just, it's crazy what aviation can do and to help yourself get ready for that. You kind of have to go to different places and try different things because that's definitely an important factor in being a pilot is you're going to have to go to different places and do different things. Yeah, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned that it's, you know, particularly the 777. You know, I, I travel uh, quite a bit for work. And one of the things that I do enjoy, which is sort of ironic, uh, is for at least for in the, the minds of most, most people, is when you don't necessarily get a uh, jetway and you get to plane on, on the stairs. Because, 
you know, you can go between, you know, as you said, London and Tokyo, and the airports are super similar, and it's a lot of the same shops, and it's almost like you never had any outdoor, you know, any experience right. of where you came from and where you're going. But there's something about like walking across the ramp and walking up the stairs and just, you know, it's the smell of jet fuel and the wind and the different climate and the different humidity. And you really can look outside and see the terrain everywhere versus if you just go like straight from security to the gate, you could be in the most beautiful place ever and not really see it out the window. Oh, yeah. And you're in air conditioning the whole time. So yeah, it's you not see the same Johnston real. Murphy store. You see the same McDonald's. Right. So there's, there's right. no different in the airports. They're all the same. I mean, some airports are obviously more beautiful than others. That's sure. definitely true. But I know I, I understand understand what you're saying and that like go experience the whole big picture almost yeah no absolutely yeah so you you know obviously you're getting that experience doubly so right, right. flying down to mexico on a yeah. and stuff i mean that's that's the real deal yeah it is going down to mexico and then even going into eastern canada where they don't speak english that was kind of a, a shock to me like i knew montreal doesn't that their national language is french and just going over there and landing and they started speaking a different language than I did. And my first thought was to immediately speak in Spanish for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Just they, go for it. Yeah, I was like, uh, well, usually the other language Americans know is Spanish. So let me try this. And then they just look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was funny. And it, it's, it's interesting. I had that same thing happen to me when I went to China for two weeks in July. And uh-huh. it was just when I heard different languages, I automatically my mind just tried thinking of Spanish just because I feel like most go Americans, with what you know, right? Yeah, go with what you know. It's like, well, if they don't know English, they must know Spanish. And <laughs> I just made people more confused. And they looked at me even weirder. <laughs> yeah. You know, something I've really looked at when I've, when I've been traveling is, is what it would it take to be able to rent an airplane. And it's always just so tough and I'm never someplace long enough to really work it out. But yeah. And obviously China is a, a, a sort of an exception. They're, yeah. yeah. They're difficult, uh, um, difficult aviation environment there. Oh my gosh. Yes, they are. <laughs> But, you know, it'd be cool in Australia or something to be able to rent an airplane and, and go goof around. And it's, yeah. it's unfortunate. I guess you have to find an N-numbered airplane and then you're getting checked out. And it's like, well, how many days of this trip do I want to dedicate to uh, to doing this? Right. No, I completely agree. It's funny you bring up, we, we talk about China's airspace. I actually have a funny story about flying in China. I was flying on an Airbus 330 from Shanghai to Beijing. It was a commercial flight. And the weather was fine. We took off. We flew for two hours, which is more than enough time to land in Beijing. And all of a sudden, we make a bunch of turns and the flight attendant comes on. The captain didn't speak. The flight attendant comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going back to Shanghai due to air traffic control reasons. So they had us fly around for two hours in like the central part of China, just circling us. And then they brought us back to Shanghai. And then everyone was like, oh, that's fine. No worries. And we're like, wait, what do you mean that's fine? It's like, I'm on a two-week trip. I need to be in Beijing. I have all these things booked. Like, how does this happen? They go, oh, well, it's air traffic control. And they're like, oh, well, sorry, it was weather. And I checked um, all my weather apps that I have. And I even checked FlightAware to see what planes are going in. And every plane was landing there. And I was tracking where they were going. And I guess they, the military owns most of the the airways in China. So they only have certain routes that go on. And I'm guess what I'm guessing happened was is that they just didn't have enough room to fit them in. So they sent them back. Which is just in America that never happens. Like you would have an uprising with the with the passengers. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know, we do um, a lot of animations of airspace and and visualizations of our data, and you know, you can basically um, if you didn't have any ma- any map, right, you could just take all the airplanes over the U.S. and you could see the outline of the U.S. based on where airplanes are, right, because they're right. kind of filling in um, where all the land is, and that's true for virtually every country out there. Um, 
China is really a system of airways, right? And so you need the map underneath it to show um, where their terrain is. And then you just see all the airway lines between them. And there's no deviating um, from those airways, it appears. And that's been my experience as a passenger. I've never flown there myself. Yeah. Um, you know, you're way more likely to end up flying through a, a thunderstorm, um, has been my experience. Um, and yeah, I've experienced the delays as well. It makes travel a little bit yeah. unpredictable. It and is a you're, headache. You're just over not there. booking two meetings in one day in, in two cities. That's yeah, for sure. Definitely not. You need to, I think they said that people, like a two hour flight, they plan for that to take up at least 16 hours for them to get there from beginning to end. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure they're going. They're you know investing in their infrastructure to fix it, but they're definitely yeah. uh, there's some some growing pains, right? That's for sure. Yeah, we all have growing pains, so they'll get there eventually. So cool. So one of the things that I do in this podcast, it's called the rapid fire section, and it's just the just some questions that I come up with. They're really simple, but it's just the first thing that comes to your mind when you, you when you hear the question. You ready? Okay. okay. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm ready, but you can start. Oh, they're simple. You'll be fine. <laughs> all right. What's your favorite plane you've ever flown? Uh, the Grumman Tiger. Ooh, that's a cool one. I haven't heard that one before. That's awesome. That, that, the reason I love it is – I don't know if I'm supposed to give rapid-fire answers. But, oh, that's but fine. The reason I love it is most airplanes, at least most airplanes I've flown, if you look straight out or your head is completely level, you're seeing the instrument panel. And you would kind of have to lift your chin up and, and look up to, to see outside. And then there's some small windows to your left and the, and the right. In the Grumman Tiger, the uh, instruments are all basically uh, – you know, they're more like your waist level and you would have to look down to see them and the controls are pretty low too. So you're not like lifting your arms up to hold, you know, hold the controls. They're more down, um, and more of a resting position for your arms. And so it's almost like you're, you know, you're, you're, the airplane's a little more of an extension of you cause it's, it's pretty small. Right. Yeah. But also it's, you're at this natural position and everywhere you look out is windows. It's not That's a full awesome. canopy like a diamond, but it's just the visibility is amazing. Um, and it's, it's just a really fun airplane. That's really cool. That's, uh, yeah, I would love to fly one of those. That, that sounds pretty awesome. All right. What's your favorite plane just in general? Maybe one that you've always wanted to fly or like your favorite airliner, favorite cargo plane, whatever. Um, oh, that's a, that's a tricky favorite airplane ever. Um, I would say the Concorde. Oh, uh, good choice. Um, certainly not one that I'm going to be going to be flying anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but I think it, it demonstrates, you know, one of the things we talked a fair bit about, um, the, the slow technological pr- progress in, in aviation due to certification and regulation and, and the safety stuff. But, um, you know, I, airplanes haven't really gotten any faster, uh, that much faster in my lifetime and they won't probably either. Um, and there was a brief, brief period in civil aviation where there was something that was remarkably, uh, different and, and, and significantly faster. I just think it's, first of all, it's beautiful, but mm-hmm. I think it's an, it's just an interesting thing. And, um, I, I'm certain aviation will get faster. I don't know if it's going to be through space. And there's a lot of people working on supersonic, both in, uh, commercial and business aviation. But I think that represents something really, really unique. And, um, so I, I think that's definitely my favorite, having never flown on it and never will. Um, but something that I've, an airplane I've really admired. Yeah. The Concorde was, especially for the time, the amount of technology that they had in that airplane was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, the, the clearly Air France and British Airways and, uh, we're really, really proud of it. And I think they have, they had a, had a reason to it. It's a shame it didn't make sense financially. And I know. Uh, obviously there were a number of technical issues as well, but, um, it was, it was super cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Here's another one for you. What is the hardest check ride you took? I would say my commercial check ride was the hardest. Um, I, I, I feel like it was really, 
a bunch of maneuvers that were, um, you know, sort of a, um, not necessary for you being a commercial pilot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just, it, you know, they're, they're trying to, to have some standards to make sure that you have some skills. And I, I respect that. And I understand that, you know, certifying and regulating airmen is difficult, but it was a bunch of random stuff that um, I don't know has provided a, a bunch of value to me. And, and I think the real reason it was difficult was because I, di- I wasn't excited about it. You know, yeah. I was really excited about becoming a private pilot and I was just paid so much, you know, I was just, you know, studied so much and I was so in, intensely interested in it. And that's true for instruments, true for multi. The commercial was something that I kind of wanted to do and check the box, but the maneuvers never excited me. And so obviously I could do them and it was no, it, you know, it was fine. But, um, when you're not ex- super excited about it, it, you know, then you're not thinking about it. You're, you're not mentally invested in it. Right. No, I, I completely agree that I always, I had an issue with some of the commercial maneuvers. I was just like, why am I doing this? And I just need to think to myself, just do them to standard, pass a check ride. You'll never do them again, and that's it. That's right. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. So we're 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 in agreement there. Yeah, we definitely are. All right. Here's one that. What's your favorite livery? Um, and this is just from a paint scheme perspective. Yeah, just from a paint scheme perspective. I would say um, it would be Southwest's prior livery. So it would be the multicolor one after the kind of the brown, oh, but okay. before the, before the, the new uh, heart, the, the one love, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So the one that's a little more purplish from, they probably released about 15 years ago, I'd okay. say is my favorite. All right. How about Airbus or Boeing? Uh, I, you know, I'm a, a red blooded American, so I don't know <laughs> that I even have a choice here. Right. Right. Boeing all the way. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's funny. All right. Here's what's your favorite thing about aviation? I would say the um, iterative and collaborative development that has led to being the safest and most reliable form of transportation. Um, you know, one, I've, I really enjoy working in the industry because people don't end up in the industry by chance. You know, they don't say, oh, I was looking for a job and now I work in aerospace. It's people who have loved it their whole life. Right. Um, and so I enjoy working with those people and I enjoy the mutual respect that people have across all the different positions in the industry. And I enjoy how everyone works together to make iterative improvements over decades and now more than a century to, um, to have it be as safe and reliable as it is. And that takes a lot of collaboration, both on the development um, and on the operations of airplanes. And, uh, it, and what I mean for that is both from the airline perspective and the pilots actually flying them. Um, and I think it's it's an amazing system that's that's worked so well. I'm proud to have a very 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 small piece of it, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's very impressive. No, I know exactly what you mean, and that that is it is something that's really cool. Just how many parts there are in just one airline plane taking off and landing. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's right. I, I agree. And last one for the rapid fire section is: What is one thing you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Well, I think you know one thing that I think would be good to know is I remember being concerned about the safety element and I, and reading about both accident reports and accident statistics and trying to figure out, is it unsafe? You know, this is for learning to fly and part 91 and all that and why. Um, and I remember looking at, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that show the, um, uh, the reasons that accidents have taken place and they give you the percentage of fuel starvation and control flight into terrain and bad flight into weather and, you know, all, all these things that everyone's seen. And I told myself, well, you know, I'll never do this one and I'll never do this one and I'll never do this one. So, I'll, you know, I, if I can eliminate 90% of the reasons then I'm fine. <laughs> and, and not that I have and not yeah. that I've had any scary incidents, but I think um, you need to, to realize that 
the way people have, you know, unfortunately gotten to the situations is not always due to carelessness or due to bad planning. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks that have had accidents that are very cautious and careful and, uh, you know, would never have put themselves in the situations that they wound up in. And, and I very fortunately, you know, really haven't, but I can, the more you fly and the more you uh, face different weather scenarios and uh, different air traffic control situations and different airplane situations, um, you become very cognizant that you don't necessarily, uh, you can't just strike out and say, this will never happen, this will never happen, I'll make sure this will never happen. And you can't just say, because I'm good at decision making and because I'm a cautious person, this won't hap- happen to me. Right. Um, you have to, you know, you need to, to make that decision every single flight and you need to make decisions with that in mind because you can't just categorically say, well, this will never happen to me. And right. I think, um, I, I was, I'm, I was very concerned about the safety and I still am. And I think that, um, just ruling out all those things as saying, well, I won't allow that to happen. Well, that's step one. You can't just say, well, I don't have to worry about it because I won't allow it to happen. And, and um, I think it would be good to, 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 to think about that some more and the decision making. Um, cause getting your private pilot's license is a funny thing. You know, you go from basically having no freedom or flexibility or, or ability to, to fly to having, you know, nearly, uh, unlimited and, right. <laughs> and, and, and your flight instruction is so focused on the PTS and on the maneuvers and whatnot. There's not a lot of time spent around, you know, what should your minimums be, you know, personal minimums be yep. as soon as you as, as you start flying. How many friends do you fly with and what sort of trips should you embark on? And so right. um, I, I think that would be valuable to, 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 to recognize that early on that um, being able to eliminate those risks is not because you've decided that those won't happen to you and that right. you're very cautious, right? You need to be eliminating those lists every second of every, every single day. Well, it's funny you bring that up because like I have actually had an engine failure. It wasn't my fault. I was flying an aerial survey plane, a Cessna 206 over the mountains of West Virginia and the engine completely stopped. Wow. And wow. me and the other guy I was flying with, we both kind of used our uh, resources and we talked together. We worked as a crew and we were able to land on the only place that we could possibly land within like 20 miles, which was crazy. Wow. But we, we, I mean, I've always considered myself a cautious pilot. I don't take unnecessary risks, but things sure. happen in aviation, you know, like there's nothing you can do. Like you, there's, like we said before, the beauty of aviation is that there's so many moving parts in it. But also, there's a lot of moving parts, and moving parts can fail. You have to count on a lot of other people, and sometimes things happen, and you have to be ready for that. And as no matter how safe a pilot you are, there's always going to be a time where you're kind of going to have an issue, or there's going to be a time every once in a while we have an issue, and you got to figure out how to get it on the ground. Yeah, and you know, I think that um, uh, to your point about being prepared for it, I think that's really key because in training, you know, you kind of been told, "All right, now we're going to do this approach to a missed approach to a whatever." Um, and you kind of, you brief the mist, you know, it's coming, you get down to 200, you know, okay, you say the runway's not in sight. Let's do the, do the mist approach. And, um, I guess you, it's, this sounds silly, but I've had this realizations many, you know, several times, which is that the mist approach happens when you're not expecting it. Yeah, and it's not sure. always the way that people that you trained, right? Which is that you don't always get down, um, to MDA or DH and then have to, um, say, oh, runway's not in sight. Let's go around. You know, I've had situations where you have it in sight. It's clear as day. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're continuing your landing and then something happens, whether it be fog rolls in or whatever. And you, you realize, oh my gosh, now I really am doing a missed approach. I, I, 
you know, I kind of thought this wasn't going to happen because I broke out at 1800 feet and here I am going missed at 200 feet. Um, and it's, it's just being prepared that it can happen at any time. And it's not, you know, when you're planning on it, you know, and a lot of times that you end up shooting approach in the first place, the weather was forecast to be really, really good. And I've had situations where, you know, the weather was forecast to be good. The weather looked really good. I was in VMC and I expected that they would say, okay, airport's 10 o'clock, you know, whatever, call it inside. And they shoot the visual and they started vectoring me for the ILS. And you're thinking, <laughs> what's going on here? Like, Wait, what? You think, well, they're just bringing me in that way. Then yeah. they're just like, okay, you're two miles from whatever. And next thing you know, you're shooting approach down to 400 feet when yeah. you had told that it was 2,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, um, you know, I think to your point of just being prepared all the, all the time. And it's, yep. it's not when you expect it, right? It's, it's not definitely true. when you're training and you always tend to lose the engine about one mile from your home airport at yeah. 15 feet when the CFI pulls it, you know, it's, yep. uh, it's when you're over the mountains, right? Yeah. It's when you're, it's the worst. We were both talking to each other before, but I like, guess would be a terrible time to lose our engine. And then like two minutes later, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's the problem. You didn't have any wood in your airplane to knock on. I know, right? Yeah. We didn't have any wood to knock on. How dare us? <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. But I kind of wanted to segue into FlightAware now, and I wanted to talk about just how, why you saw the need for this, what, why you created this, just why you made this awesome app, and what it is becoming and what it can become for this industry. Yeah, so I, I started it because I wanted flight tracking for you know friends and family for for general aviation. And when I pitched it to the FAA, which was our originally our only data source, it was I said I want to make a transparent website. Uh, into the air traffic control system and it was purely a hobby and and both because I was just solving a need that I had and I wasn't also because I wasn't tied into the industry enough to um, you know really be able to know what people needed now you know fast forward uh, more than 12 years and not only are we serving uh, kind of the owner operators and the private pilots in general aviation but also the majority of corporate flight departments um, all sorts of service providers, we're providing services to airlines, and it's really grown into um, a flight data company, um, operational support, operational tools, um, analytics, metrics. Um, and one of the cool things is, you know, even though I spend a lot of time with customers and I'm trying to learn what what challenges they're having and how we can help them address them, um, they continue to have a lot of the best ideas because they're the ones who are facing facing these issues. And so right. I always approach people with the perspective that. Um, yeah, I'm a pilot and, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm familiar with avi- aviation, meaning it's all I do every day for more than a decade, but I've never worked at an airline. I, you know, I don't pretend to know what challenges you face. And so, um, we, you know, we really approach that this conversation is really more of a, of a partnership to try and understand, um, how we can apply our information to help people make decisions that save them time and money. FlightAware definitely does that. And we have used, I know I've said this before, I've used FlightAware forever. And I, like whether it's just tracking, my dad's an airline pilot, whether it's just tracking his airline flights when I was first getting in aviation and kind of loving aviation. And then it was just a looking at a, what was coming into Charlotte, where the plane was coming from, how it was flying, even digging deeper and getting into some of the log data where you can see the altitude, you can see the speed, you can see a trend, you can kind of see what the plane's doing and kind of get a real time thing of what's going on in the, in the actual cockpit. Yeah, it's uh it's pretty cool. And, and what I, what I've enjoyed is, and originally we, you know, we started going to conferences and stuff in 2006 and meeting people who operated corporate flight departments who use flight or, and to hear, um, how much time they saved as far as whether it be meeting airplanes or making other accommodations or be, you know, doing, th- doing things outside of just operating the airplane 
that they were able to do because of, of FlightAware. Um, and it's, it's really amazing to think about how much time and money can be, be saved by getting information out there. And it's, it's really changed people's expectations around uh, knowing where planes are and how they can schedule them and, and being able to, to be a lot more efficient. Yeah, for sure. And we all know in aviation, it's all about time. Time is money. And whether you want right. to know the route you're going to be flying so you can plan on fuel, that's also part of the thing you use for FlightAware. You can kind of see a trend of what ATC is doing. And then you can also just see how long it's going to take to get to where one point to the other. And you can see when I was in China, I would actually look at the flight. I would put up the flight number for the plane and I would look at the log and I'd see what the average delay was and how often the plane would actually take off on time. So you can kind of prepare yourself if you're a businessman and you're doing this in America, you can see you can you can see if it's a, a relatively reliable route or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, talking about being able to be prepared, there's an airline that has integrated um, what we do into their EFB for the purpose of crews being able to look at the airspace around the origin and the destination. And it's not for separation. This is just before they, they take off. It's just to provide some situational awareness around which runways are in use, where, you know, which, you know, what are the turns looking like? Are people holding? Um, and it provides, and how dense is it? Is it super busy? Is it not busy? Um, and so it's just amazing, you know, all the different applications uh, that can be built on this uh, data platform. Right. And one, another, I know I've said all the things I love about it, but I have another one I just thought of is obviously flying single pilot IFR. We fly through most of every single weather you can imagine, right? Right. So, I use it when I get a trip, I have about five minutes where I can kind of plan for it, get everything I need, kind of figure out what's going to happen. And I, the first thing I do every time is I bring up FlightAware and I look to see what planes are flying through what. I look to see, all right, that's a bunch of yellow. Let me see if their plane's flying through that. And then I can see, and then I look at the type of plane and then I look at the altitude that they're at. So I can kind of be like, all right, well, if he's doing that, then maybe I can. Like it's not, I'm not for sure going to go off that, but I use that as a resource to help me plan my flight. Yeah, people have talked about um, using flight or in flight to get situational awareness for the same thing. If there's a huge thunder, thunderstorm cell or two of them, it's like, are, is anyone going through them? Are they going on the east side or the west side? And like you said, you're not making your decision based on that, but it's yet another valuable piece of information and that you might otherwise have to probe air traffic control for. And if you can right. maybe ask them some question or make some requests with that knowledge in mind, um, not only are you saving time and, you know, making a decision with more information, but, um, you're just a lot more comfortable and com- comfortable. That's a <laughs> confident and comfortable. Yeah. Uh, fine word. I there. like it. <laughs> yeah. Feel free to use that. It's yeah. a trademark it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> no, but I completely agree. I mean, just being comfortable and being ahead of the airplane. And then when weather comes, you also need to be ahead of what the weather is going to do. You need to predict where that, yeah, that red cell is off to your left right now, but in five minutes, by the time you get there, it's going to be right on top of your plane. So you need to be, be able to predict what's happening. And I think flight aware in the cockpit can really help that. Cause I know it helps me make decisions on the ground, but in the cockpit, it could also help you with real time decisions as well. Because I mean, yeah. XM weather it's it's fantastic and I love it to death. But sometimes it takes 12 minutes for me to get an update. Sometimes it takes two minutes. Sometimes it makes seven. So it's kind of unpredictable and you need to have other resources helping you make those decisions. Do you have in-flight Wi-Fi? Is no, that how you're... not. No. Okay, we just use it. a typical uh, XM, uh, XM receiver. Okay, got it. I wasn't sure if you were able to pull any flight over data while you were in flight. No, we're not. Not yet. Maybe I'll talk to the bosses, see what they can do. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, mentioned the difference between being on the ground or being in the air. And something that um, surprised me is, you know, one of the first 
products we had was um, for corporate flight departments and for business jets. And um, we always allowed unlimited users. So if you signed up, you paid per tail number and, um, you know, give as many accounts as you as you want. And I guess I'd always sort of thought that someone with a jet might want three or four accounts, you know, mm-hmm. for an associate, maybe their assistant for their you know, husband or wife or whatever. And what blew my mind is that um, a lot of a lot of jets have something like 40, 40 people have access to it. And it makes sense, right? So you go, okay, well, there's a bunch of crew members working, you know, that right. work this airplane. Um, there's the flight department manager. There's maintenance people. Um, you know, they might have some third-party managers or they might have an, another co-owner. You have all their associates. You've got family members. And it's it's pretty funny because um, you can – and then if you think about an airline flight, the number of indiv- people we have tracking an individual airline flight is unbelievable because you have, you know, a lot of airline employees u- using it. And then you have all the people who are flying on it and trying to see, if, you know, when it's going to leave and whatnot. Then you've got family members. So, I mean, it's not uncommon to have hundreds of people tracking an airline flight. And it's funny because I've actually um, – yeah, I set up flight alerts when I'm uh, when, when I'm traveling to you know be notified of delays and stuff, and I can go and look in our database and see how many other people have an alert on the same flight. And <laughs> it's sort of weird to be you know you're getting on triple seven, you look and there's like sixty people that have an alert on that flight, and so you know you're probably sitting next to somebody who's getting the same flight or flight flight alert. That's really funny, yeah. <laughs> uh, and just there's a there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of people who want that information. No, there definitely are. And like we talked, like we touched on a little bit earlier and how you kind of didn't expect it, but it's like not even pilots, not even aviation nerds or av geeks. It's, it's the spouses, it's the grandmas, it's the mothers, it's the fathers, it's everyone just tracking an everyday flight. Just someone maybe just wants to know when that flight's going to get in or what it's doing right now. Where, where's Johnny flying from LA to Charlotte, you know, and you can go tracking, see where Johnny is. So that's really cool. Yep, exactly. And we're, you know, we're constantly trying to come up with more, more applications and more use cases. So I think the number of people tracking each flight is going to continue to grow. Definitely. Well, that's awesome. Well, on my Instagram, I put out a, a little blurb to have people ask, see if they had any questions for you. And there was okay. two that really okay. stuck out. So I'm just going to ask okay. these two. Let's and do the it. first one is, what's your favorite feature that maybe the average user doesn't know about? Okay. Um, well, let me, uh, I'm trying to think. So the, on the airline side, I think that the, the, the biggest feature that uh, most people probably don't know about is the ability to track the inbound flight. And the deal is that when you're flying or you're about to fly on an airline, we typically know the tail number that you're going to be on. And so we can track where that tail number is now. And so something you can do is let's say you're, you know, you're walking through security and you're not going to board for another 30 minutes or something. You go to your, you know, United flight, American flight, whatever, then click track inbound flight and you can see where that airplane is right now. And if they're saying that the flight's going to board in 30 minutes, but the airplane's an hour away, right. <laughs> you know, you might have a little heads up on, uh, on what's going on. So I think that's uh, a super powerful feature. Oh, definitely. No, I, I actually use that feature quite a bit because I, my dad flew for the airline, so I flew standby a lot. And it would help okay. me kind of, I don't know if you've ever flown standby or heard horror stories, but I've slept on a lot of airports. I've had flights canceled, delayed, everything. But I could use that to kind of help me figure out what flight to go for. So I'm in the airport and I'm trying to get to one city, but sometimes you have to go through multiple cities to get to that one city. And I can track, well, this plane's going to be delayed. So a lot of people might get off that plane and I'll find the earlier flight. So the earlier flight's a bad flight to go on. So now I can try the later one and stuff like that. So I'm sure you never even thought about it in that aspect, but it helps out. Like that is a great tool for everyone to use when they're just traveling in general. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh 
Um, you know, I think that something that we face is there's a lot of times where we can predict a delay that the airline hasn't announced yet. And <laughs> you know, there's some politics around, uh, you know, should we be calling those delays first? And I think in the future, you'll see that we will be exposing a little bit more of that, but still making available what the airline um, has has announced. Because, you know, they can make changes to what it, what what tail is going to fly, which route and stuff. Right. So uh, we don't want to go too far. But I like empowering people with the information that right. we have. No, I agree. I think like the the option of having like, oh, strong chance of a delay, you know, like that would help the passenger kind of know and kind of make the whole traveling a better experience. Because as you know, things happen way out of people's control, weather, delays, airline duty days, going captains getting over duty and all that. So your flight gets canceled. But if the passenger has some sort of idea what's happening, they can plan ahead. Maybe they can go get good food rather than go to McDonald's. They can sit down for an hour and eat food and stuff like that. So that information can definitely help everyone and even just the average passenger. No, I think it's one of the most important things in life is setting expectations accurately. Sure. So kind of uh, like what we talked about with flight schools earlier. That's, that's exactly right. So I think this, the flight schools and airlines should attend my seminar. <laughs> For sure. Let's see if they can get them to listen to podcasts and we'll get them to the seminar, right? There we go. <laughs> All right, Daniel. So one of the questions that I was asked was why flight aware? Like why would you recommend in maybe a pilot or just your everyday traveler? Why would you recommend them to use your, your service and use flight aware? I think that the most compelling thing that we have is not only that we have more data sources than anyone else. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're getting data from more than 50 governments around the world, from more than 100 airlines, through data link directly connecting to airplanes, through our own ground station network of about 12,000 ground stations doing MODAS and ADSB to space-based ADSB with with Arion. You know, we have more data than anyone else, which is valuable. But we have an engine called Hyperfeed that takes all that data and turns it into information. And so we're not just taking, for example, just ADSB and putting it on a map. We're taking tons of different data sources and figuring out what does that mean? What does that mean for the flight? What information can we uh, kind of determine ourselves from the flight. So, for example, we don't necessarily rely on the FAA or the airline to tell us a flight departed. You know, we're, we're looking at the positions and saying it departed. Um, if you if you fly around with an ADSB airplane um, VFR, we can figure out the origin and destination from just the positions. And so, we're working to derive information. Uh, from the data. And so what we're really looking to do is distinguish ourselves from just, um, you know, one data source put on a map essentially to 10,000 data sources or 20,000 data sources turned into information that's on web pages and mobile apps that people can actually use to, um, you know, interact with aviation, travel, fly airplanes and, and make their lives easier. Definitely. And then on top of that, like that sound like to the average person, that probably sounds so crazy. They'd imagine that your software is super hard to use, but it's not. It is super intuitive and really easy to use, which I think is just as great as having all that databases and everything else. So just the ease of use of your product. Well, thank you very much. It's um, it's a little tricky because, you know, it's one single app, essentially, whether it's on the Web page or, or, or mobile, that is designed for everyone from um, you know, the, uh, you know, your, your grandparents tracking you on Southwest to a business traveler who flies every week to a 172 pilot to a triple seven captain. <laughs> and it's, it's really tough to, um, you know, strike that, that perfect, um, that perfect point where you're giving everyone the information that they need and not too much and not, and not too little. Um, but, um, it's great to hear that people are, are using it across all those spectrums. Oh, definitely. Without a doubt. I know that it is, at least in my circle of aviation and what I've seen, it is the number one 
used app for flight tracking. And even in my 135 company and customers that I call, they talk about FlightAware. So, I mean, you guys are doing something great and you have a great product. And I know that I'm not only thankful, but everyone else is thankful for that product. So, thank you for creating that. And um, those (laughs) are pretty much... (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh yeah, no problem. Anytime, man. Uh, those are pretty much all the questions I have for you, though. Um, I'm gonna awesome. do a well, quick, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm gonna do a quick little exit, and then if we want to debrief for a minute or two afterwards, we can. But uh, okay. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's so cool to see that you just spend the time and come on this podcast and share your story of how you created FlightAware, or sharing your story about why you got in aviation, and just kind of just open up to people that may not maybe know your name, but may not know you personally. So I think it's really cool that you were able to do that. And I can't wait to see what the feedback is on this. And hopefully we can get even more people using your, your service and product. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. The time flew by and like a lot of pilots love talking about aviation and, (laughs) I, you know, I, I enjoy that I, I work in the industry and have the opportunity to uh, talk about it every single day. But, um, you know, a, any opportunity to um, try and help out other people who might be thinking about going down this road, whether it be to be a professional pilot or because they want to learn about aviation, they want to get in technology like like I did, uh, is is really great to to be able to help in any way. Well, definitely. Well, like I said, thank you so much. And uh, I hope one day I can have you back on the show and we can talk about some more aviation because I'm sure you have tons more stories that you could share. (laughs) Sounds good. I'll do it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. All right. Aviation, thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. As I mentioned earlier in the intro, head to patreon.com slash pilot to pilot and make sure you become a supporter. You're going to be entered in an awesome giveaway where you have a chance to win a four flight subscription and a FlightAware Enterprise Weather subscription. And we're also going to give away some FlightAware swag. I'm going to be doing many more giveaways in the future. This giveaway will go to the end of the year. So I'll be drawing the name at the beginning of next year in 2018. So be on the lookout for that. If you guys like the idea of giveaways, let me know. I'll try to find more ways to do more. I hope you guys have an awesome time flying and just have a great day.